Uh, Today I have more slides than I've ever had in my entire life on the book of Leviticus. Uh, Back in 2016, I preached through the book of Leviticus uh, with 28 messages, and um, it it was one of the most enjoyable series that I've ever ever worked through because for so much of um, my life, I've fought this battle with people um, about how the Old Testament functions. The Old Testament is not a different way to approach God. It's the same way to approach God, um, but it is presented in pictures and symbols. In the Old Testament, you're always saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. In the Old Testament, you're saved by grace through faith. You're not saved through the sacrificial system. You're not saved through keeping the law. All of that is a part of sanctification. It is a part of how you grow, how you live your daily life. If you're looking at it symbolically, um, God created the whole world, and he is sovereign, and he's got a good plan to restore us back into fellowship with him. That's the book of Genesis. In Exodus, he redeems his people. That's their salvation. He redeems them through a substitute on that Passover, that first Passover day, brings them out of their bondage, symbolically their bondage to sin, and then he dwells with them. That's the book of Exodus. The book of Leviticus is now that you're saved, you're out of Egypt, you're out of your bondage, how do you live your life daily with God in your presence? What we're going to eventually see in the book of Numbers is God's always with us and his purposes can't be thwarted from opposition from without or rebellion within. And then in Deuteronomy, we're going to get um, a real call to commit back to that. Um, That's how the Pentateuch, these first five scrolls, um, fit together. Now, what I have on there today is I have the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, as the Jews would call them. I have them with their Hebrew names. Um, Now, if you watch The Chosen, and I would highly recommend that you watch The Chosen, that you watch the deep dives with the biblical scholars talking about the stuff that goes on in The Chosen. For the first two seasons, what I can tell you is I love it. Um, Biblically, it is accurate. I encourage you to watch it. It is really, really good. Season three, they may go off the rails. I have nothing that I can say about season three because I haven't seen it. Seasons one and two are amazing. I'm going to show you a scene from season uh, one that is Jesus going into a synagogue, and he is encountering the five scrolls in the Torah, um, and he's going to choose one of those scrolls to read from. Now, I'm not going to show you the whole scene, but I love it later on when he actually chooses to read from Genesis. What he says, this is Jesus talking, he says, oh yes, I'll read from Genesis. That's a favorite memory of mine. Um, (laughs) creation. I love that. It's a great thing. Um, but I just want you to see, this is kind of what it would look like in Jesus's day. He goes into a synagogue. This happens to be a synagogue in Samaria where all of the readings in that area would have only been from the Pentateuch. Here, here's him encountering these five books. These five books form the foundation of, um, of scripture. They form the foundation of um, how the Jews approach life. But the foundation also for us, because it is the beginning of God's program to restore us back to him. In the beginning, Bereshit is the Hebrew word for Genesis, because it's the first word in the book. Um, And it talks to us about, in the beginning, what God is doing in his sovereign and good plan to restore us back to him. Exodus, Shemot, is the names of the people who were in Egypt, but they're going to come out of Egypt. So it starts off with their names. That's the first word in the book. The first word in the book of Leviticus is, and he called. We're going to see God calls to Abraham out of the tent of meeting, what we often call the tabernacle. 
Um, the first word in Numbers um, is in the wilderness. And so it is the stories of them in the wilderness. And Deuteronomy starts off with the words of Moses in these sermons that he's going to preach. This becomes the foundation of all that they're doing. Now, we're in a section, Exodus and Leviticus, it's going to fo- show up a little bit in Numbers and then a lot in Deuteronomy, where we're dealing with the law. Now, let me talk about the law and how the law functions. I think there are really four categories that the law falls into. There's the moral law that is for um, character. This is kind of reflecting the character of God, how we should live our lives. It's morally the standards we should live. There's a civil law that is really for all humanity, how we should relate to one another, how we should treat one another. There's a ceremonial law that is how we worship, and this is for believers, how they enter into relationship with God. And then there is the constitutional law, and that is how Israel should function. In Leviticus, we're going to see all of this. There's going to be some moral law. There's going to be some civil law. There's going to be ceremony that you go through. But then there's going to be some constitutions that say this makes us distinct. This makes us different. And it's specifically just for Israel. And and things are going to change significantly when you get to the New Testament. But keep in mind the functions of the law. I want you to also keep in mind that this book is written to priests, but remember, Israel is a nation of priests. In Exodus, we read this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. The Israelites were not just a nation who had priests. They saw themselves as a kingdom of priests, And yet some of them functioned in that role in a ceremonial way. But God wanted them to all be a kingdom of priests. So all of this um, material that we see in the book of Leviticus that is um, very liturgical about how they go through the process of their worship, it was written for everybody. And don't forget this, in the New Testament, we as the church, we are a, a, a church of priests. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, we, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. All of this verbiage that is used of Israel is used of us as well. We are a priesthood. And so we need to understand all of this material about how we come into a relationship and maintain that relationship with the Lord. And that's what Leviticus is going to do. Leviticus is going to say, Now that you've been redeemed, saved by grace through faith in God's provision of the Passover lamb back in Egypt, out of your bondage, now that you've been saved, he's in your presence. How do you live daily in your presence? Repeatedly through the book, you're going to read this phrase. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself and be holy because I'm holy. The idea of it is this. Because God is holy and he is in their midst, we should be holy as well. I want you to make this connection real quickly. He's in the midst of them in the tabernacle. He is in the midst of us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's not over in a tent. He's with you everywhere you go. So because he is with you everywhere you go, you should consecrate yourself. You should, you should understand how to deal with sin in your life, which is what they're going to figure out. How to make your daily life reminders that he is with you always. Um, have the seasons of your life reminding you and pointing you to what he has done. And you should be serious about that. 
Because God is in a covenant relationship with us. By the way, I just talked through the book of Leviticus. Sacrifices and priests and ceremonies and festivals and a covenant. That's the book of of Leviticus. So let's talk about the context of this book. Who's writing it? When is he writing? Where are they? And why is he writing? First of all, who composed the book of Leviticus? Moses recorded some of these events as instructions received directly from the Lord. At the beginning of the book, God's going to speak to him from the tent of meeting. And at the end of the book, he's going to speak to him from the mountain. He's basically going to say, I'm here in the tent. I want you to come over here. I'm going to tell you all of these instructions. And then later on, he's going to call him up on the mountain. Although there's a couple of places where there are some events that he is an eyewitness to in chapter 10 and chapter 24 in particular that he's going to narrate. So the bulk of the book is instruction directly from the Lord, from the tent, or from the mountain. That's what's going on. When did all of this happen? These events occurred in a 10-month period when the Israelites are camped at Mount Sinai. Okay, let me give you a little context for that. Here's the very end of the book of Exodus. The very last verses of Exodus say this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting because they received the law, plans for the tabernacle. They build the tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's the end of Exodus. Here's the beginning of Leviticus. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, you have this dramatic thing. Um, They are redeemed out of Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. They receive the law. They get the plans for the tabernacle. They build it. God's presence comes into it. Moses can't even enter it, but God speaks to him from the tent of meeting. That's the very first verse of Leviticus. Now, at the end of the book, it seems like God's going to call him back up onto the mountain because the Lord says to Moses in chapter 25, the Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, he's going to go up to the mountain. Okay, where were they? Real quickly, this should be all review mostly. Moses and the Israelites were camped at Mount Sinai after being delivered out of Egypt. Okay, put this together. Um, Here's a map of the Middle East. This is the promised land that God had given Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. At the end of Jacob's life, they uh, travel down here to Egypt. They are there for 400 years in bondage under a number of pharaohs. The pharaohs change. They forget about this um, positive relationship they have with Joseph. And they put them in bondage for 400 years. After 400 years, God sends Moses, book of Exodus, to deliver them out. They cross the Red Sea, and then they travel down here to Mount Sinai. When they get to Mount Sinai, they get the law. They get the plans for the tabernacle. While they are there at Mount Sinai, they stay for about 10 months. Okay, let me give you a couple of uh, pictures here. This is probably the mountain we're looking at. A lot of people argue about where it might be. We don't know exactly. This is probably Mount Sinai. This is the traditional location. You can see lots of pilgrims there trying to make their way up. This is the mountain Moses is going up on where he, um, God is a pillar and a fire up there, and he receives the law, plans for the tabernacle. God takes him back up there at the end of Leviticus, talks to him about this covenant he's going to make with them. In front of this mountain, currently, if you went there, is this. It's St. Catherine's Monastery. By the way, when I was looking at the picture, this is probably, by the way, the mountains there in the background, this is probably where the people were camped, down here where this monastery is now. 
just for fun, I love the real title of this is uh, the Sacred Autonomous Royal Monastery of St. Catherine of the Holy God-Trodden Mount Sinai. Um, that's what it is. Okay. But that's, this is where they are. Um, Moses has been up on the mountain. They have come back down and probably in front of the mountain here for about 10 months. Um, they go through a number of things that we see in the book of Exodus, but they are constructing this tabernacle. God dwells the ta- in the tabernacle, and then he's going to give them instructions. So that's who, Moses and the people of Israel, um, when, where they were. Now the big question, why? Um, Danny Hayes summarizes it this way in the Baker Illustrated Bible Handbook. The laws in Leviticus explain to the Israelites how they should live with the holy and awesome God residing among them in the tabernacle. If the holy, awesome God is coming to dwell among the Israelites in the tabernacle, how will that change their lives? How can sinful people survive with the holy, awesome God living in their midst? How should I approach him? That's the lesson for us as well. (laughs) The holy God lives in us. That's going to require us to deal with sin in our lives. That's the sacrificial system, first seven chapters. We have to have a mediator who brings us into the presence of God, a priest, a high priest. Jesus does that for us. There's a ceremony for them. Then there are some daily reminders in chapters 11 through 15. It's called the purity code. We're going to talk about it. That are the daily things that remind them they're special in God's sight. Then there's going to be some holiness laws that are going to um, help them understand how to relate to others in their community. And there are going to be some festivals that they remember that all are pointing to Jesus because Jesus is the one who allows us to come up into the presence of God. Because not everybody lived eventually around the tabernacle, but they had to come up to the tabernacle to be in the presence of God three times a year. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the festivals. I'm going to try and make that clear. So let's talk a little bit more clearly about the content. First of all, how is all of this arranged? And then we're going to get into what it actually says. How it's arranged is fascinating. Leviticus has a clear theological arrangement. It moves theologically, but it's presented in a chiastic structure, a kind of a hinge. It, it, it has A, B, C, B, A. It has a hinge to it, which places right at the center of the book the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, by the way, is part of the work of Christ that is yet to be fulfilled. In Leviticus 23, you get all of the festivals that you're supposed to attend. One of them is the Day of Atonement. It gets two chapters, specifically before you get to the calendar, it gets two chapters all to itself, and it is yet to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. We'll see how Jesus fulfills all of these things, but he has not yet fulfilled the Day of Atonement. So how is it organized? Well, we can talk about where he gets the instructions. He gets instructions from the tent in chapter 1 through 24 and instructions from Mount Sinai in 25 through 27. In each one of those, there's an interlude where somebody dies, and it is pretty dramatic both times. There's an interlude at the very beginning after he gives the laws of sacrifices. He's inaugurating the, pri- the priests, and two priests, Nadab and Abihu, do some bad stuff, and fire comes out from the tent of meeting and kills them. And God says to Aaron, their dad, don't mourn for them because 
I am serious. You better do this right. And so I want people to know you are walking on holy ground, and I'm serious about all of this. Then he's going to go up onto the mountain. He's going to start to get covenant renewal from God. And real quickly, there's going to be an interlude. And one little kid from whose mother's an Egyptian blasphemes, and he gets killed. This is a, these are the two stories that, that, Abraham, that Moses is getting the instruction, but all of a sudden he sees this and he puts it in there. Now, why do you have these two interludes of death? I, I want to say it in general this way. Every time Scripture moves to kind of a new uh, paradigm that God is working with, every time something new starts, there is an outbreak of miraculous work and a serious judgment. This happens in the New Testament when the church is born. A new thing, there's an outbreak of the miraculous. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. People are speaking in tongues. And Ananias and Sapphira are killed for not keeping their pledge. Every time a new thing happens, God says miraculous things will happen. And I'm going to let you know here at the beginning, I'm serious. Why does God do that? I can go to a quote from my wife. My wife um, has a master's degree in education. Uh, She has taught school. She hasn't taught school for a number of years. But when she taught school, she lived by this rule, okay? And it is this, never smile before Thanksgiving. If you think you're going to have control of those kids, do not smile before Thanksgiving. After that, you can be fun, but you have to establish the connection and establish the control first. That's what God is doing. God is saying, here's the rules, and I'm serious about it, and you're going to see how serious I am about it. Never smile before Thanksgiving. So there's the words from the tent, the words from the mountain, and with each of them, there's, hey, I'm serious, and somebody dies. Another way you can think about the structure is this. You've got the laws of sacrifice in chapters 1 through 7. One time for the people, one time for the priest. You go through it, um, chapters 1 through 6, halfway through chapter 6 is how the people do it. In the second part of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 is kind of the, the details for the priests. Then you get the institution of the priesthood. Um, the, the institution with Aaron as the high priest, his ceremony, and then chapter 10, his two boys who mess it up and die. Chapters 11 through 15, you get laws of purity. This is all of the stuff where you have to wash your house, and if you have a, um, uh, if you have a, a discharge from your body, somebody has to look at it and tell you whether it's clean or not. And if you have mildew in your house, Leviticus 13 is all about mildew, okay? You shouldn't have mildew in your house. Just, we'll get there. And then laws of holiness, kind of how they separate themselves and live the holy life is chapters 16 through 27. I'm really encouraging you, as, as we do each one of these books, watch the Bible Project video. If you watch the Bible Project video, you're going to see this chart built, and it starts off, and this shows the chiastic structure. It's going to start off with these rituals of sacrifice. Then you're going to move to um, the, the priesthood, the institution of the priesthood. Then you're going to get the ritual purity. Then in chapter 6, 16 and 17, you're going to get the Day of Atonement. This is a huge deal where sin is finally not just taken care of for a while. The, the ceremony shows sin being removed from their midst. Then you're going to go back into some moral purity that they're supposed to be living. Then you're going to get some qualifications for priests who are going to um, be helping them with all this moral maturity, moral uh, 
moral purity and helping them know how to live that out. Then you're going to go back to some more rituals with the feast, and then it finally ends with a covenant, okay? So how this moves is ritual priest purity, day of atonement, purity priest ritual, and then a covenant at the end to say, are you really committed to this? Because here's how God's going to live with you. But in the middle of this is this day of atonement thing. And, and the Day of Atonement, we're going to eventually get to when we talk about the festivals and their calendar. The Day of Atonement is the culmination of all that Christ does for us, pictured for them. In my chart, which you can get out at the Connection Center, and by the way, there's some Exodus charts out there because I revised some of the Exodus charts and put some new dates and stuff on it. It's not substantially different, but there's a little bit. Um, what I'm trying to do here is highlight this Day of Atonement f- function. And then highlight as well the commitment that they make in covenant at the end of the book. Okay? So that's, that's how the book is arranged. There's a couple of ways you can look at it. Um, from the tent, from the mountain, the topics that move through this chiastic structure. Um, now, what did all this look like? To understand it, you have to understand a little bit of... Um, Furniture and clothing, okay? That's what you've got to understand a little bit and how the calendar is going to work. Um, This is the tabernacle. This is the thing that God gave them the plans for in Exodus, and they actually built. Um, This is a big courtyard, and I'm going to talk about some of the pieces that are out there. But there's this big altar in the middle. There's a laver where they ceremonial cleanse things. Then there's a tent that is um, built, and within that tent... Um, There are two rooms. One room has some furniture in it. And then the back room, which is closed off, is where the um, Ark of the Covenant is. We're going to talk about some of these pieces of furniture. The altar of burnt offering is a big grill. Okay? Think Traeger grill. Giant Traeger grill. Because what's going to happen there is they're going to cook a lot of these animals. Yes, they're sacrificed. The blood is spilled. But they're put up on this thing. And they are, many of them are cooked up there. They're not just burned to a crisp. Some of them are, but it's a big, big thing where they are putting all of these animals up there, okay? There's the labor for washing the priests, and there's uh, a ceremonial reason for that. You're going to see that in a minute. But there's also some other things. Inside the tent, there's this altar of incense. And it's an altar not where sacrifices are made, but where incense is burned. And the incense represents the prayers of the, of the priests. Um, the, the priest is going to grab the horns, those four things on the corner. He's going to grab those horns, burn incense, and pray for the people. That's what happens inside the building. There's prayer for the people. By the way, please turn in prayer requests for us so that we can grab the horns of the altar and pray for you and offer up those prayers to our Lord. Back in the back part, in the Holy of Holies, there's this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Um, It is where a number of um, things are stored. It's covered in gold. And many people call it the mercy seat. Stop doing that. I I, I need you to stop doing that because of a very important humility I would love for our body to have as we come into the presence of God. That is not a seat. Seat. When the high priest comes into the Holy of Holies, he is not walking into a place where God is seated. When the high priest comes into the Holy of Holies, he is coming to the footstool of God. We only approach his feet, people. 
First Chronicles says this, King David rose to his feet and he said, this is him taking the, the tabernacle and transferring it to the, t- wanting to transfer it to the temple. Listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. In Psalm 132, let us go up to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool saying, arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Here's the point I'm really trying to make. When we come into the presence of God, he's not our buddy. He's not our pal. He's not sitting down. He is a holy God. And when you approach him, do you know what you approach? His feet. You'll get to come into the presence of his feet because he is holy. He is seated in heaven. And he allows his feet to come down and be in this place. But our sin contaminates it so much that we have to have an entire sacrificial system to purify the area so his feet can be there and we can be there with him. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, most of the newer translations call it the atonement cover because it is the place where atonement is made where, where we are able to come into his presence at his feet. It's his footstool. I don't know if you get this image. God is seated in heaven. His feet are there. And the highest holy person in the, in the whole system just gets to come into the presence of his feet. But in order to do that, there has to be this purification system. We're going to talk about it. All of that tabernacle stuff gets transferred over to the temple when Solomon turns it into a permanent structure. Now let's talk about some clothing. My nephew, Mark Hancock, is a C-130 pilot. His daily uniform looks like this. But when he's doing something fancy, here he is with Candace, um, when he's doing something fancy, he, turns on, he puts on a different uniform. Okay? He's got a regular uniform, he's got a fancy uniform. The priests in the Old Testament have a regular uniform. They have a fancy uniform, okay? You got to understand how this is going on. The fancy uniform has a really interesting deal to it. There's a headband on the fancy uniform when the high priest is going in to the, uh, to the Holy of Holies to be at the footstool of God. What it says in Hebrew is um, holy to the Lord. <laughs> now, to be holy to the Lord... The high priest has to go through all kinds of sacrificial stuff himself before he's truly holy. He has to sacrifice and make sacrifices and purify the place from the sins of the people. Now, that's um, the furniture, the clothing. Now you need to understand a calendar. We'll talk about this more in just a minute. In the spring, the people would come up to the tabernacle or come up later to the temple And during the spring, during the barley harvest, the early barley harvest, they came up to celebrate Passover, a feast of unleavened bread, and first fruits. They were bringing the first fruits to to, to offer to the Lord. Fifty days later, during this middle of the summer, they came up now with the wheat harvest, and now they offer something they make. Um, They've had enough Um, blessing from the Lord, that they're able to make something and come up and essentially they're offering a couple loaves of bread in the tabernacle and the priests are going to be able to eat it. They come back in the fall, fruit and nut harvests, and this is going to be the biggest celebration because we're at the end of the year, all the harvests are in, they blow trumpets to get everybody to come. They celebrate the central thing, the Day of Atonement, where sin is finally 
gotten rid of, and then they dwell in booths to, to commemorate we are dwelling with the Lord. Okay? Keep that calendar in mind. What's the whole message? Okay? Here's how I would summarize the whole message. Moses sets forth the sacrifices, cleansing, worship, and holiness necessary for a redeemed people. Remember, this doesn't save you. This is how redeemed people deal with their sins so they can be in the presence of God. How they can live as a holy priesthood with a holy Yahweh dwelling in their midst in order to show the true way of approach and how to maintain fellowship with God. This is what's going on in the book. It doesn't save you. I don't know how how more clear I need to be. I, I tremble because... I I understand that without the work of the Holy Spirit, this is not landing on people. You are saved by grace through faith always. Old Testament, New Testament. You are saved by grace through faith, not by observing the law or going through any ritual sacrificial system. God's grace saves us. We don't earn it. Our faith in the Old Testament, in the promised provision of God that is pictured in a lot of things saves us. For us, it's not a promised picture. It is a person, Jesus Christ. All of this other stuff is how we maintain the fellowship. Now, part of that is through a sacrificial system. The theology of sacrifice makes clear the complexity of sin, the grandeur of grace, and the fullness of forgiveness. Here's how it works. There's five different offerings, burnt, grain, peace, sin, trespass. That's how they're presented in Leviticus. I'm going to put them in their logical, chronological order. Sin, and unintentional, doesn't matter, any sin, whether you know about it or not, you have to be purified. And the best way I can describe this is sin seems to be airborne in some way because sin contaminates everything around us. Because when the sin offering is, is given, the blood's not put on you, the blood is put on the place because your sin has contaminated the place and it has to be purified. There's a trespass offering, which is when your sin damages somebody else and you can't just offer a sacrifice. You've got to make it right. That's why it's often called the reparation offering. You repair the damage. After your sin is taken care of, you've taken care of the damage you've done to other people, then you offer the whole burnt offering because you are completely dedicating yourself to the Lord and he is completely receiving you. Then you give a grain offering, which is your appreciation of what you've done, and it culminates in a sacrificial meal that is eaten to celebrate peace and fellowship with God. That's the sacrificial system. Uh, The first one is a a deal um, that takes care of the contamination of sin. The next one takes care of the damage of sin. The next one shows how we are accepted because now our sin's taken care of. We're fully devoted to God. The grain offering is our appreciation, and the peace offering is the celebration that I'm now in fellowship with him. I have peace with him. That only lasts for a little while, because the next time you come up, you're going to have to do it again. Not because you're not saved and you need to get saved again. That happened in Egypt. That happened when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But your sin must be confessed, dealt with, then you're dedicated to the Lord again. You give appreciation and you can celebrate all of that. It works like this. It moves from forgiveness through the sin and reparation offering 
to atonement, now in right relationship with God. That's why the whole offering is burned up, a whole burnt offering, because it basically says, I'm fully dedicating myself to you. The whole thing is burned up, and the aroma goes up before God, and he accepts it. You're, you're fully dedicated. He's fully accepting you. Then you dedicate yourself to the Lord with a meal offering, saying, I understand everything I have is yours. Here's a symbol of it. And then you have a party. You cook the meal, you bring your family in, you bring in some poor people, you cook another animal, and you have fellowship with the Lord. Then you move into these chapters that deal with clean, unclean, and holy. Okay, Let me just real quickly <laughs> talk about this. Unclean is abnormal. Clean is normal. This does not have anything to do with sinfulness, dirty, or contagious, even though some of these things can be sinful, dirty, and contagious. The deal is it's out of place. And so here's how this works. If you're unclean, something's going on that's out of place. You've got a bodily discharge. Uh, You got mildew in your house. That's out of place. Not sinful, just wrong. Um, You're eating um, an animal that's kind of wrong to eat, uh, okay? Um, If you you do that kind of thing, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to cleanse yourself so you can be clean. You can't go from unclean to holy. You have to wash, Um, then you sanctify yourself so that you can be in the presence of God. Now, if you go back the other way, when you're holy, you profane to become clean and you pollute to become unclean. This is going to make sense in just a minute. To go from clean to unclean, you have to wash and wait. You wash and you wait either 7, 14, or 21 days, okay? You have to wash and you have to wait because you've been in some place that's not right. It's not okay, okay? So wash and wait, To be sanctified, you have to sacrifice, okay? Now, washing, waiting, that's all about water. Sacrifice, that's all about blood. You think that may be what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 3 when he says you have to be born of water and of blood? You've got to be cleansed, and you've got to come in because of a sacrifice. Now, how does the purity code function? It's, it definitely is hygienic. It keeps them healthy. They're dealing with mildew and bodily fluids coming out of them. Um, it's cultic. It keeps them separated from pagans. Don't do this because pagans do it. Sometimes it seems to just be a test. Sometimes it's very much teaching something. But all in all, I think it is reminding them of their sanctified identity. They don't have a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't take place until the day of Pentecost. But they do have daily things they do the food they eat, the clothes they wear, the things they can touch that are all through the day reminding them you're a different kind of person. Now, we don't have to go through all those rituals because we have the Holy Spirit, if you're sensitive to him, reminding you through the day you're a different kind of person. That's what's going on. Now, let's talk about the, the Jewish calendar, okay? <laughs> Moving quickly as I can here. Um, in the spring, they come up to... Um, offer the feast of uh, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. This is when they come up and they remember their exodus from Egypt, remember what happened, the Passover. Um, they separate all of the leaven. It kind of purifies themselves. themselves, And then they offer, because it's early in the year, the first things that are coming out of the ground, a first fruits. They kind of look, oh, look, there's a little bit of barley. I'm going to grab a little handful of barley, take it up for Passover and offer it to the Lord. 50 days later, they're going to come back. Now they're really in the midst of um, heavy harvesting of wheat. They're going to make a couple loaves of bread. What they make, offer that to the Lord. They're going to come back in the fall when trumpets are blown. 
They're going to experience the Day of Atonement, which is this. The Day of Atonement is when two animals are sacrificed, one for their sins, and then one symbolically is going to have the sins placed on the other scapegoat. And that scapegoat is going to be sent out of town. And eventually the rabbi sent somebody with him to push him over a cliff because the goat sometimes would come back into town and everybody's freaking out because the sins came back. Um, and so they said, okay, some, some priests go out, push him over a cliff because we don't want him coming back. That's what happens. Now, the rituals of Leviticus were all written with Christ in mind. So here's how that works. The first set are fulfilled in his death. He's the Passover sacrifice for us. And his resurrection, he's the first fruits that came out of the ground. Literally came out of the ground. And we're going to be the ones who now come out of the ground in our resurrection. Fifty days later, Jesus made something. He made the church. They made two loaves of bread. Jesus made the church. We are anticipating the blowing of trumpets that gather us to the Lord. Sin, death, Satan, all removed from our presence, thrown into the lake of fire. And then we dwell with the Lord in these booths forever. This whole thing is pointing to Jesus. Now, at the end of this book... He enters into a Palestinian covenant. I'm going to summarize this as quickly as I can. The Palestinian covenant says three things. If you obey God, you'll be blessed with increasing blessings. If you disobey God, you'll be disciplined with increasing discipline. And as God's people, if you repent when you've disobeyed, he will restore you. Let me just quickly move you toward, uh, here's kind of, you'll, you'll be blessed with prosperity, peace, productivity, and his presence, which is the culminating thing. That's when you obey, you'll be blessed with these things. If you disobey, you're going to be disciplined, and it's going to get worse. It's going to look like this, defeat, drought, wild beast, devastation, and eventually deportation. It's going to continue to get worse. But if you repent, God is going to restore you. Confession of sins results in forgiveness and restoration. Here's what it says. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them, so they sent them into the land of their enemies, deportation, it got to the end of the list. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. I'll bring you back into the land. God's people will be blessed for their obedience, disciplined for their disobedience, and restored when they repent because God is faithful to his people. The book ends with this wonderful flow where they are brought into the presence of God. There's a mediator that Christ fulfills. Um, the Holy Spirit now reminds us that we're a distinct people, not the, the purity codes. Um, there's a whole way that Jesus fulfills all of this redemptive work with his first coming, Pentecost, and his second coming. And, and at the end, it tells us that we need to be serious about all of this. So, so what? <laughs> so what? The Lord's holy, and he's to be taken seriously because he will knock you down. Fire may come out and he destroy you. But the Lord doesn't want to destroy you. He wants to fellowship with us, and he's made a way for us to fellowship with him through all that Christ has done for us. And all of the sacrifices and the festival systems, they all point to Jesus Christ. So how should we behave in light of that? Maintain purity in your life and access fellowship with the Lord through his provision. You're already saved. He's with you. Maintain purity in your life. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit reminders throughout the day. And access the fellowship that we have with God 
Because God's made provision through Jesus Christ for that to happen. Where does all this fit? It's a pattern for sanctification. And it's full of pictures of Christ's redemptive work. So what are some next steps? Well, begin to read the Old Testament with a focus on grace, provision, predictions, and pictures that all lead eventually to Jesus Christ. Stop reading the Old Testament thinking people got saved in a different way. They didn't get saved in a different way. They were saved by grace through faith. Their faith was in the provision God was going to provide that he gave them pictures of. We're saved by grace through faith in the person who fulfilled all the pictures and the prophecies and the predictions. Begin to read the Bible the right way. Reject a rules orientation to life. These are not rules. These were provisions for how they could be in the presence of God because that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be fellowshipping with him, at peace with him, celebrating with him. And reorient your life to embrace a relationship perspective in how we live.